Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. First reading is from Proverbs chapter 4, starting at verse 1 through to verse 9. Listen, children, to a father's instruction and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender and my mother's favourite, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget nor turn away. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honour you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a fair garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Second reading is from Colossians chapter 3, starting at 18 uh, through to chapter 4, 1. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly, featuring the Lord, fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it, as done for the Lord and not for your masters since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. The Christian faith isn't um, a philosophy or a method for ensuring good life outcomes. Uh, it's a message about a person, about Jesus of Nazareth. And it's a particular kind of message. It's an announcement, the announcement that Jesus is the Lord. Uh, we call that announcement good news, gospel. That's what the word gospel means, good news. Uh, Jesus, who was crucified, now lives forever as the true Lord of all creation, reigning in grace and truth, making a way for all things to be reconciled to God, defeating the powers and authorities that have held the world in slavery, crushing sin, evil and death under his feet. Uh, today we come to one of those passages that can be hard on the surface to see as good news. But when we dig deeper, that's exactly what this is. Our last week's passage ended with a summary statement of how to live in the light of the gospel announcement. Now, Simon used it actually to gather us together this morning. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here in this next section that we get to today, we see that applied to three uh, somewhat fraught and controversial areas of human life, marriage, family, uh, and slavery. It's a difficult passage, uh, but it's difficult in the end, not because of what it actually says, but because of all the mess and the muck that we've managed to build on and around these verses over time. 
And so our task today is to clear away some of that mess and muck so that we can see these verses for what they really are, good news. Good news for wives, good news for children, good news for slaves, and along with them, their husbands, their parents, and their masters. So uh, three points today, you'll see them on the screen, and it's very, very straightforward. You can guess how it's going to turn out today in terms of our points. If you want to flick through to the next slide there, you'll see them. Um, It's good news for marriage, good news for family, good news for slavery. So I'm going to kick in straight away. We're going to talk about marriage first. This is going to be by far the longest part of the sermon, so don't worry, uh, and uh, we'll see how we go. Good news for marriage, Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. In these first two verses, Paul establishes a pattern that he's going to repeat with children and fathers, slaves and masters. First, he makes an uncontroversial statement about the weaker party in this relationship. Wives, he says, be subject to your husbands. Secondly, he relativizes that statement by relating it to the lordship of Jesus. He says, as is fitting in the Lord. And thirdly, he revolutionises the relationship by placing obligations on the stronger party toward the weaker. Husbands, love your wives. He does this with all three of those categories. We're going to see it uh, twice more. He makes an uncontroversial statement, he relativises it by relating it to the lordship of Jesus, and he revolutionises the relationship by placing obligations on the stronger party as well. Uh, Let's work work through each of those things uh, that he says uh, in relation to those things here to uh, wives and husbands. Uh, What does it mean that wives are to be subject to their husbands? Uh, The Greek word he has to do with order. Uh, Wives are to order themselves and their lives toward their husband, to be facing him, to align themselves with him. Uh, Notice that Paul doesn't command them to obey their husbands here. He's going to say that to children and slaves, but he doesn't use that word here with the wife. Uh, The command to be subject is about a whole of life ordering toward the husband's good and well-being. So far, in ancient Roman culture, nothing controversial has been said. But note that even before this command is relativized in the light of the Lordship of Jesus, that it's framed here as a willing form of subjection. Uh, There's no statement here that wives are subject, kind of just in 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 an objective kind of way, to their husbands. And there's no command to husbands to subject their wives to themselves. Instead, the command, be subject, asks wives to do something to themselves, for themselves, in and from themselves to make the willing choice to order their lives toward their husband in this way. But then uh, Paul further relativizes his command by adding, as is fitting in the Lord. Uh, That phrase both uh, motivates and qualifies the wife's willing subjection to her husband. Uh, There's lots of these kinds of lists of instructions in the ancient world. They're often referred to as household codes. And almost always, the reasons given for a wife's subjection to her husband is that husbands are naturally suited by nature to have authority over their wives and men over women more generally. The same goes for the authority of fathers over their children and masters over their slaves. These things the ancients said were were natural. But here in Colossians, there's no mention at all of the husband's authority, and that in and of itself is already revolutionary in the context. Instead, the only authority that's mentioned here is the authority of Christ. It's right, Paul says, for a wife to be subject to her husband, not because of her husband's authority, but because of the authority of Christ. Uh, One commentator puts it like this, I think, really helpfully. Uh, The point that Paul's making is not a wife must put her husband first. Paul's point is rather that a wife must put the Lord first. And that means that her being subject to her husband has to be a qualified subjection. She must never be subject to her husband in a way that compromises her being subject to Christ. 
Presumably, that means that there are ways to be subject to a husband that are not fitting in the Lord. And that's given some shape, actually, by the third and most revolutionary thing that Paul says in this first set of commands. The husband is to love his wife and never to treat her harshly. Controversial? I mean, it seems obvious to us, right, that you would say that kind of thing about a husband in a marriage. That's true. But not at all obvious in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the obligations all ran one way, from wife to husband, always from the weaker party to the stronger party. But here, the husband also has obligations. Now, what might that actually all look like in practice? Uh, You're probably aware, if you've been a Christian for more than about three seconds, that there's a never-ending stream of literature on this subject in the Christian world. And this uh, the related idea from Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Corinthians that uses the language of headship and submission. Uh, Most of it, to be honest, is garbage. Most of it's just really, really bad. Just to put that out there right at the start. Uh, What most of that literature does, trying to put into practice this idea of a wife being subject to her husband, of him being the head, all that kind of stuff, most of the literature attempts to define in practical terms what the role of the wife is and what the role of the husband is. The problem with that is that the Bible doesn't really seem to care about defining those roles at all. Paul doesn't give us any concrete how-to descriptions of what it looks like for a wife to be subject or, in fact, what it looks like for a husband to love. Uh, Paul here seems not to be concerned about defining two different roles. Instead, he's concerned about one marriage, about the relationship itself. And he's concerned to see that the partners in that marriage relate to one another in a way that reflects the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Greek word translated be subject here uh, seems to be primarily about the wife's disposition rather than about particular actions. This is how she is to view herself in relation to her husband because she's subject to Christ. In the same way, the command to love is primarily about the husband's disposition rather than specific actions. This is how he is to view himself in relation to his wife. Of course, concrete actions will flow out of those dispositions, but Paul seems to assume that if you get the dispositions right, then the right kinds of actions will flow out of it. And what that looks like in practice, therefore, is almost certainly going to vary from marriage to marriage, depending on the particular people who are parties to that marriage relationship. But we can give it just a little bit more shape than that, I think. Now, the whole section here is talking about how life in the Christian household must be shaped by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we can see Jesus, actually, in both of the commands that are given here, be subject and love. Because Jesus, of course, willingly subjected himself to suffering and death in order to serve us. And Jesus gave his very self in love for those he came to save. And that's, I think, what Paul's really getting at here when he talks about both subjection and love. For a wife to be subject to her husband will mean ordering herself toward him in Christ-like self-sacrificial service. And for a husband to love his wife will mean giving his whole self to honour and serve her well-being. Christ-like service is what's on view here. Paul's saying, in your marriage, make sure that your relationship is shaped like Jesus. If Jesus is Lord, then a husband and wife must serve one another just as Christ has served them. And so, of course, there's a radical mutuality in these commands. Both wife and husband are obligated to ongoing care and concern for one another's flourishing and growth and good. That's certainly good news in the ancient world. Uh, There's one sociologist and historian who wrote about the ancient church, and when he unpacked what all of this looked like compared to the the normal practices of marriage in, in the ancient world, he said, it's amazing that every single woman who heard about Jesus didn't immediately become a Christian. That's how different it was. Certainly good news in the ancient world, this relationship of mutuality rather than power and domination. But of course, it's good news in our world too. 
And in fact, this passage speaks to our own culture's view of marriage in a really unexpectedly direct way. Uh, the husband's disposition of love toward his wife is fleshed out with a negative command as well, and never treat her harshly. The Greek word behind that phrase is again actually a word about disposition more so than action, and it's related to the word to be bitter about something. You could perhaps translate it as, and never act with bitterness toward your wife. Uh, in our world, just as in the ancient world, there's the possibility of bitterness in marriage. Uh, and our world, I think in a strange way, actually actively stokes the flames of bitterness in marriage because our, uh, our culture tends to view marriage as a path to personal fulfilment. And so if marriage is hard, or if it isn't fun in the way we expect it, or we just get a little bit bored, or being married to this person holds us back from doing that thing that we'd like to do, then we assume something has gone catastrophically wrong and therefore our obligations don't apply anymore. Perhaps the classic example of this in our day and age is the retired husband who decides that his marriage just doesn't make him happy anymore and so trades his wife in for a new model. When his own sense of personal fulfilment is no longer being met, his obligations cease to be binding, or so it seems. But marriage under the Lordship of Christ isn't a path to personal fulfilment, instead it's a path of service a path made possible because we've already come to fullness in the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that's good news for marriage because it means that the mutual whole of life servant love that flows out of that fullness in Christ means that even when things get a little bit rocky, the wife's fundamental commitment to serving the Lord will steer her toward her husband and the husband's fundamental commitment to serving the Lord will steer him toward his wife. A marriage under the Lordship of Christ will be a marriage, therefore, of deep trust and loyalty that runs both ways. So there's a little challenge to us here in our particular culture, I think, as well, which is to ask this. Are you feeling any sense of bitterness for those of you who are married in your marriage? Are there things that are kind of just sticking with you, you know, maybe sticking in the back of your mind or in your throat as you speak to your spouse that you go, this is the thing that actually I'm really dissatisfied with in my marriage? You have to decenter yourself as the main thing in your marriage and instead centre Christ and therefore to serve your spouse. Just a few comments about the actual practicalities of all this before we move on. Uh, the fact that the commands here are about dispositions of the heart rather than detailed roles means a few different things. Uh, firstly, it means you should, I think, be a bit sceptical of very specific Christian teaching that says this is exactly what those roles look like. And secondly, to say it's up to each married couple to work out what it looks like for them. Uh, here's an example. You often hear Christians say that in practice, the husband is the one who has the final authority in decision-making. Have you heard this kind of idea around from time to time? Uh, the thing is, the Bible never actually says that. The Bible never gives that as an application for what it looks like to be, for the husband to be the head, for the wife to be subject to him. It doesn't say it anywhere. And so, if you in your marriage together uh, as a, a couple decide to express the lordship of Christ over your relationship in that way by saying you have the, the final say as the husband in things, that's fine, you can make that decision. But you need to own the fact that that's a decision that you have made rather than a direct command from the Lord. And if that's not how your marriage works, then that's fine too. Each marriage will need to wrestle with what is fitting in the Lord. The teaching here, as brief as it is, also provides a way, I think, for wives and husbands to challenge one another when things aren't quite working the way that they're meant to. It's a beautiful picture of mutual service of one another, but of course marriage doesn't always work out that way, at least mine doesn't, maybe I'm the only one. But when things aren't quite working the way that they're supposed to, husbands can gently, in love and without bitterness, 
ask their wives what it is that's making it difficult for them to be on the same page. And wives serving their husbands by calling them to faithful service of the Lord can humbly point out behaviours that are unloving and harsh. Uh, Alison and I picked this up a little bit in our own marriage um, using the word of being on one another's team. We often talk to each other about this. Such and such a thing that one of us has done or said uh, doesn't show me actually that you have my back, that you're on my team. And that might not be a bad way to think of both being subject and loving without bitterness, to always, in everything, have one another's back. And passages like this give us some language, actually, I think, to unpack that and be able to help one another walk well in the Lord together. Uh, Lastly, uh, it almost goes without saying, except that it has to be said, uh, that these commands clearly exclude particular behaviours. In short, the command to husbands to love their wives and never treat them harshly, absolutely and without caveat, rules out any form of coercive or abusive behaviour in marriage. Such things are harsh and unloving, and it is not fitting in the Lord for a wife to subject herself to such treatment. Uh, and so if you're in a marriage where you're worried about uh, what that looks like and, and what's going on in your marriage, uh, do, do speak to someone. Do actually ask for help. Come and talk to me or Louisa, Andrew, someone who you trust. Talk to someone if that's your experience, because there are things that are not fitting in the Lord in a marriage. Just one more thing uh, on the marriage front um, before we move on to family. Um, I figured, you know, middle-class white guy standing up here telling everyone what to do in their marriages, including the women in the room, I thought I should probably ask Alison what she thought. Uh, And so here's what Alison said. She thinks that it means in our particular context for a wife to be subject to her husband and a husband to love his wife uh, without bitterness. Here's what she said, just two ideas. Uh, She said, wives, don't badmouth your husbands to other women behind their backs. Apparently that's a thing, I don't know. There's group chats, apparently, of women who talk about things and say things about their husbands, so I'm told. Alison's advice, wives, don't badmouth your husbands to other women behind their backs. Be loyal to them, in other words. And husbands, make a real effort to be present and useful, rather than always leaving the mental load of your life together to your wife. I'm sure that's nothing specific about our marriage at all. Thank you. Husbands, make a real effort to be present and useful rather than always leaving the mental load of your life together to your wife. There's heaps more we could say about that, of course, but there's more to say in this passage as well. I'd love to hear your own thoughts on that, and actually I'd love to hear stories about uh, how this plays out in your own marriages as well as we seek to teach and admonish one another in these things together. Good news for marriage. That's what the Lordship of Christ is. And it's good news too for family, point two. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. Um, it, it might be that, you know, there's marriage, there's slavery, and we find what Paul says about those things awkward, but most of us are pretty fine with what it says about parenting, interestingly. Um, but here you go. There's actually something revolutionary and good news for both children and for their parents here. Again, we see the pattern that Paul established with his instructions to wives and husbands. First, there's an uncontroversial statement in his context, children, obey your parents. Secondly, though, that statement is brought under the Lordship of Christ. This is your acceptable duty in the Lord. And thirdly, there are revolutionary obligations placed on the stronger party toward the weaker. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Uh, Even before we get to, to that, though, there's a kind of revolutionary edge here to what Paul says, and that's the fact that children are actually addressed directly here at all. In the ancient world, children were essentially spoken about but not spoken to. They're never given instructions in kind of the manuals for household living that exist in the ancient world. But here, in this letter, Paul invites them to willingly obey their parents. Not only that, he tells them of their duty in the Lord. In other words, he assumes that the children here will have their own living and active faith in Jesus. 
Uh, the command here is stronger than the one that's given to wives to obey rather than to be subject. Uh, but again, it's a qualified obedience. It's in the Lord, a duty to him first and then to their parents. And again, the child-parent relationship under the Lordship of Christ is seen as being a mutual one. There are obligations that run both ways. In the ancient household codes, fathers were exhorted to stamp their authority definitively on their children and were often judged according to how well they could control their children. There are manuals devoted to explaining how to get your kids to, to wait on you at the dinner table and all that kind of stuff. But here in Colossians, fathers and, and mothers too in our context, fathers are specified because they were always clearly the ones with the power in the household. We share that a little bit differently in our culture and so I think the, the command here to fathers applies to mothers as well. Here in Colossians, fathers and mothers are told not to provoke their children, which seems to have on view the kind of harsh, controlling behaviour that might cause a child to want to rebel rather than to obey. It's a similar idea, actually, to a husband not acting bitterly towards his wife. And I wonder if, in our context, it might speak again to that idea of personal fulfilment. It's easy, isn't it, to make your kids the kind of like outworking of your own goals and hopes and dreams and expectations for your life, rather than treating them, as Paul does here, as people in their own right. Just like marriage isn't a path to self-fulfillment, though, neither is parenting. And if you treat your kids as though their job is to fill your own particular hopes and dreams and expectations, then you'll end up crushing them. As Paul writes here, you will run the risk of causing them to lose heart. Uh, One more thing that's worth noticing, and then I'm actually going to leave some kind of more thoughts about how to apply this in your parenting to a video we're going to see a little bit later on. But one more thing to say now is this, that the appeal to children here to obey on the basis of their own faith in the Lord Jesus reminds us that the fundamental responsibility that Christian parents have towards their kids is to encourage them to know and trust Jesus. That's that's the ballgame, really. Everything else is secondary to that goal. How do you do that? Well, as I said, we're going to see a video video interview, actually, after the sermon that will get into the practicalities of parenting as Christians a little bit more, so I won't say anything about it right now. But what I do want to say is this, is that even though the goal of all Christian parenting is to grow your kids in the Lord you can't actually guarantee that your children will become Christians. You can't. That's not in your power to do. There are Christian parents who are really bad at modelling Christ, and yet their kids develop a deep trust in Jesus. And there are Christian parents who are beautiful models of Christ in all they do, and yet their kids decide to have nothing to do with Jesus. And then there's the rest of us in the middle somewhere. There's no one-to-one correlation, no straight-line direct relationship between your parenting and your kids' faith. The link is more tenuous than that. But it is real, and so we need to do everything in our power to encourage our kids in their faith. As I say, we'll hear some more about the practicalities of that uh, in just a moment's time. Uh, Good news for family, good news for children and for parents, and good news as well, the Lordship of Jesus Christ for slavery. Point three. Uh, Let me read this section for you again from verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it, as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, It's entirely possible that, that this is actually the most revolutionary section of the whole text in its original context. And it follows the same pattern that Paul's established with marriage and with family. First, he makes an uncontroversial statement. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Uncontroversial then. Controversial now, of course. Secondly, uh, he brings that statement under the lordship of Christ. Do it fearing the Lord. 
Thirdly, he then revolutionises the relationship by placing obligations on the stronger party. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. It's kind of hard to overstate how radical this actually all is in the ancient context. Slaves were property. They had no rights. They were completely at the mercy of their master. But here, Paul, if you like, demotes their masters. They're merely earthly masters. The Christian slave's true master is the Lord Christ. And even more fundamentally than that, Paul reminds the Christian master that they too serve the same master. You also, he says, have a master in heaven. In other words, the slave and the master are on the same level. They're both slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you compare that statement with the Greek philosopher Aristotle's theory of slavery, which was that slavery is natural, that some people are by nature born to live a free life and others are actually just better off being slaves. By nature, that's who they are. It's therefore fitting for some people to be owned by others. They're naturally inferior beings. But not so under the Lordship of Christ. Indeed, as we heard last week, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. Everyone serves the one master and therefore has obligations in him toward one another. What does that mean for us, this word to masters and slaves? Now, this is the hardest of the three sets of commands in this passage to apply to our own situation. For obvious reasons, our situation is radically different to that of slaves living in the first century. Uh, the institution of slavery in the ancient world, of course, wasn't merely an economic arrangement. It's not like the contract between an employer and an employee. It was absolutely foundational to the ancient economy. The ancient world would have collapsed in a heap if all the slaves at once had decided to just walk off the job. But even more fundamentally, the institution of slavery was social and even ontological. There were different kinds of people and some were inherently more worthy and dignified than others. And so the master-slave relationship was a whole-of-life kind of deal. The master determined uh, not only the work that the slave would do, but everything about their lives. They lived in the household together. They did what the, what the master did. If they had children of their own, the slaves, those children would become the, the master's children to look after. They were denied their rights of parenthood. We live in a very different context, of course, don't we? We don't work in the same household as our employers. We have very clearly defined rights as employees. Uh, of course, it's not to say that, there's, uh, that there aren't uh, power imbalances between employer and employed. There may well be things that can and even need to be done to improve workers' rights and rebalance the scales. And in fact, evangelical Christians were at the forefront of legislating, legislating for example, the eight-hour work week and establishing trade unions precisely because of texts like this in the New Testament. All of that said, though, our, our context is very, very different. And yet there is actually wisdom at work here for how we uh, approach our own work in this day and age. Because the effect that the Lordship of Christ has on the slave is that their own work is transformed from forced labour to service of the king. Paul writes, whatever your task, put yourselves into it, as done for the Lord and not for your masters. Uh, that word for yourselves is literally your, your souls, your whole person. Take your task and do it for the true master from your heart. Treat it as though it's a job that Jesus himself has given you to do. And here's why actually we can take this wisdom and apply it to our own work here and now as well. Because if that can be said of the work of slaves, how much more can it be said of our work? In the gospel, our work is sanctified as service to the Lord. And that means that your work is, on the one hand, not what fulfills you, 
Instead, the quality of your work and the manner in which you do it will overflow from the fullness you already have in Christ. You'll want to do a good job of things as you see it in the light of the gospel. But not because you need it in order to be who you are, but because you've already been given an identity in the Lord Jesus. At the same time, your status is not dependent on the kind of work that you do. Any and every task can be done in service to the Lord himself, no matter how big or small, no matter whether it's paid or unpaid, no matter whether it's in public or in the home. And so, as one theologian writes, that any task, when done to the Lord, becomes a royal road to dignity of the highest order. A royal road to dignity. That's what your work becomes in the Lord. And, of course, on the flip side of the relationship, the obligations of earthly masters to their slaves are suggestive of the way that Christian employers should behave too, treating their employees as whole persons, not merely as productive units. Christian employers will be generous to their employees, considerate of their needs outside of work as well as at work, and because they treat their employees as whole people, I think Christian employers will often also be committed to helping uh, their workers grow and flourish in their work for their own honour and enjoyment as well as for the bottom line of the business. Uh, finally, though, it's worth uh, noting that passages about slavery like this one in the, in the New Testament were, were actually the beginning of the end for the ancient institution of slavery. Uh, even though it didn't happen immediately, once the idea started to get out that actually there was one true master whom everybody served and everybody was on the same level with equal dignity before him, once that idea started to get out in the Roman Empire, the idea of one human owning another human ceased to make very much sense at all. And so... Inevitably, irretrievably, over the couple of hundred years after this letter was written, slavery in the ancient world collapsed. The gospel announcement, the good news that Jesus is Lord, placed a bomb under slavery, if you like. A ticking time bomb that would blow up and end this institution. And so that also means for us, because we know that slavery still exists in the modern world, that also means that as Christians we're going to be people who go hard in our own time to work with organisations like International Justice Mission to bring an end to modern slavery, because the Gospel says that's actually not how people ought to relate to one another. As we draw to a close, though, I want you to just notice, finally, uh, what it is that Paul does with this category of slave. Uh, the whole section here has been applying that summary from the end of last week's passage to marriage and family and slavery. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul echoes that phrase again in his instructions here to slaves. To them, he says, whatever your task, put your soul into it as done for the Lord. I wonder if you notice what that's telling us about what it means to live life to the full in the Lord Jesus. It means to be his slave. This slave situation is taken as a picture of what it means to be a Christian. It means to be given over entirely, wholeheartedly, from your very soul, from your most inner being, in everything you do, to serving him above everything else. And that makes sense, of course, because of the kind of master who Jesus is. A master who loves us, a master who never treats us harshly, a master who treats us even better than with justice and fairness, a master who emptied himself taking on the very nature of a slave, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We have a master who made himself subject to suffering and to sin, and so dethroned in his death and resurrection every ruler and authority that enslaved us. We have a master who set us free, a master whose service is perfect freedom. And so, sisters and brothers, fellow slaves of the Lord Jesus, this is the charge that this text gives to us today, to serve the Lord Christ in all that we do from the heart.